Um, hey, you, you've heard me say before, many years ago, I actually, like, I led this hiking trip with college students, and I, um, I love, I love, I love hiking, I love backpacking. It was a day when I just, I loved it even more. And, um, and I don't do that stuff as much because, you know, when you go in the backcountry, it's kind of hard work. You know, there's no toilet out there. I don't know if you knew that. There's no curtains. There's no privacy. But it's really beautiful. You should go. I'm really selling it hard, right? Like it's, so it's really, uh, but I, I, it's, it's amazing to, to be part of it. And I was leading, leading this trip, and we had um, a dozen of us. And I also had, uh, so I'd be like the team leader, and I had someone who was going to kind of man the back of the line. So we keep all these people together because we're going into the wilderness. And um, when you lead people on a trip like that, there are going to be valleys and mountains, literally, to go to. And the first trek was about 10 miles deep. And we're five miles in at this point. And we've, rest assured, we've prepared everyone before that. We've prepared everyone with every detail that has to happen. You know, how you pack your pack, what kind of food you bring, what to expect, you know, in regards to everything, including, the, you know, when nature calls and how you do privacy and all that kind of stuff and how hard it'll be, and how you can train beforehand. Now, all these were college students, so they're naturally fit and can get conditioned, right? You know, they're not, they're not 45. They are, I don't know, be careful, right? In 45, you can do a marathon, like, tomorrow. Don't even worry about it. Okay, but when you're in your 20s or 23, and you're college students, like, you could, you, you could go do that, right? Five miles in, and we come to a rest, and everyone catches up after some significant time. And I see someone walk by, and there's, there's a tear dripping down their face. I know I'm, I'm not smiling at them, but I'm kind of <laughs> you know, looking back. I'm kind of laughing, like, that's hard, that's hard. This, this probably taught them a lot, right? You know, and, the, and the person that's taken up the back comes up to me, and, and he's like, hey, we're almost losing someone. Like... Uh, I know we have five miles more. We've told everyone how long it is. We've told them how to, like, it's okay, though. It's okay. They're young. They're young. No one's going to have a heart attack, but uh, it's just hard. Probably the hardest thing we've done. And as I think back on my life and those kinds of experiences and how hard that trip it, it was for that particular person, I'm reminded that as we follow Jesus, you see, the following of Jesus has valleys, and it has mountains, and it has beautiful landscapes to view, and the experience of the exertion that takes place in your own body, which feels good in of, its, in of itself. Some people are like, whoa, I don't do that, dude. I, like, use a pen. I don't. But all that stuff, all of that life is exciting and fun, and it also has ex uh, immense difficulty and hardships and tears in the midst of that hike, in the midst of that journey. Now where we are um, in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been going through a series called uh, The Disciple Maker. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 8 and 9, and 10 will be for, for, the, for next week. But all this is uh, packaged a bit together. And what's, what, what Matthew is screaming out in chapter 9 and, and 10 as he shows us these healings that Jesus does, there's a series of healings, about 9 or 10, these, these 
these episodes or these themes, if you will. And um, the disciples and others are following Jesus. And what Matthew is screaming out is, follow Jesus. Follow him. And Jesus is saying that, and Matthew is saying that, he's pointing that out. When you look at this particular section, chapter 8, and chapter 9, and chapter 10, it's not like this is a uh, chronological perfect order of the things and life of Jesus in this particular area, by the way. Matthew has a significant point he's making, and that point is follow Jesus. Uh, the disciple maker is calling his uh, disciples to follow him. He's calling you and I to follow him. Because how does uh, the disciple maker uh, make these disciples? Well, he calls them, step one, to follow him. And so today, I, I'm gonna, I want to I show you that right here in the text, but I'm also, I want you to know that you can know how and learn how to follow the disciple maker by um, observing some themes that I'm going to lift out today. So like, now first of all, I just want you to see that he's, he, he's telling them, his disciples, he's telling these people to follow him. It begins in chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to skip around uh, just a bit. You don't have to try to follow. You can just listen for a moment. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When he came down from the mountain, by the way, from preaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that is chapter 5 through 7, it's this famous sermon where he tells the, the, these people how, what life looks like in his radical kingdom. He comes to this section, and it says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds, are you ready? Followed him. Um, and and uh, from, from then on, as he's, he's going forward, um, there's this interaction with, with some religious-type people um, later in the text, and they are like, hey, uh, and, uh, verse 19, we'll, we're going to fall, man, we would follow you anywhere. Now, when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side, and in verse 19, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, uh, foxes have holes and birds of the air um, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, um, um, and Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Follow. There's another episode or a theme that could come out as he is entering into the, the sea and there's this demonic storm that takes place. And they're going out to sea, and it says in verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And then uh, later in the text, he comes across a tax collector named Matthew. In, verse, in chapter 9, verse 9, it says, and Jesus passed from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. So you can see over and over, the way Jesus makes disciples is he calls them, tells them to follow him. And then, and over and over again, he calls every single one of them to follow him. And, I'll, and I'm going to stop right there for a moment. There is this interesting transition that takes place 
between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, 8, 9, and 10 are together, but they're separated by um, the late latter verses in chapter 9, verse 35, and it says this, And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every um, affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the first area, eight or section with its themes, chapter 8 and 9, He's, he, Jesus is addressing these people who are afflicted with, and he's addressing them with great compassion. And after that, chapter 10, what he does is he's going to now take his followers and he's going to send them on mission and to go do this, this ministry. And that is for next week. But this week, we're going to focus on chapter 8 and 9. And I'm not going to address every single thing in the text, but I will give the opportunity for you to. So if you are on our email list, or if you are in a branch group, then you will get a, a, like just a very simple document that will allow you to do some deeper study and reflection, if you'd like. And I would invite you to do that, because we are not going to cover every single theme. We are not going to cover every single miracle here. And so Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him in the way, um, and, and you can, you and I can learn to do that, if by observing some of these themes that comes out. So, so theme number one. Theme number one is this. Compassion for the outcast. Now, it begins in chapter, in cha uh, at the end of chapter 9, right? You know, when, when he saw the crowds, right? He's proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, chapter 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. So we don't just see a compassion. We see a compassion toward a, a particular kind of people. And I want you to see that. It's the compassion for the outcast. Now, let me start with the very first section of it, and then I'm going to tell you about some others that are in the text. It begins with his interaction with a leper. A leper is someone with a horrific skin disease. And from what I understand, I am no expert by any means, barely understand leprosy. Maybe we barely understand leprosy in general. Uh, but it's a terrible uh, disease. It's beyond the skin itself. It's actually neurological. And what happens is people, you know, I don't know if you know much about nerves, and you, you know kind of intuitively because you're a human being, hopefully, if, you got, if you're mobile. But they help your nerves and your brain. It helps you to, to move, but it also helps you to sense so it's your mobility and your sensory. Now what happens with leprosy is people, certainly they start to lose both of those, but part of it is related to their sensory and feeling. So the horrific way this disease impacts people is that when you don't feel things, you injure yourself. So not only does your skin just have all kinds of issues outwardly and run it, uh, it can turn colors, and it's just, it's just awful, and, it, and it's just brutal for the person because it, it, uh, uh, it changes the way they look, but then you can lose limbs. You lose limbs, you lose your sight, you're, you're just a mess. And here's this person that comes to Jesus. And when he came down, in chapter 8, verse 1, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Notice his posture. 
he came to him and he knelt before him saying, Lord, notice what he says to him. Notice his posture. Notice what he says to him. Lord, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. So notice what Jesus says, but first notice what he does. And Jesus, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. Don't miss that. He touched a leprous person. He put his hands on a leprous person. If you're anything like me, there's a lot of things that you're not interested in touching. But to touch, to take your hands and to put them on someone with leprosy, now we don't know how bad it is, but it must have been pretty bad. You see, he came kneeling, begging, recognizing who Jesus is, but he's sliding into second before Jesus. And Jesus touches him. This is not the only place where Jesus is going to put his hands on someone. I'm going to read on, and then I'm going to just say some things about that. And Jesus said, I will be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to, to anyone, but go. Go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus shows great compassion for the outcast. I'm going to pause for a minute to show you some other outcasts in the passage here. He certainly, Matthew is telling us that he does that at the very end of chapter 9. But also, in addition, if you were to look at all the different people that Jesus interacts with, he heals a leper. He heals, he's going to heal a Gentile's servant. A Gentile's an outcast. Um, he's going to heal a woman. A woman is socially outcast in their culture, by the way. He's going to heal demon-possessed, for sure, socially, spiritually, outcast, not welcome into the temple. Um, he's going to heal, heal a, a, a paralytic, a dead girl, and he's going to touch the dead girl. Now, now the reason I'm pointing that out, because when you're reading the Old Testament, the scriptures command um, when you do that, you become unclean. And yet the interesting thing is when Jesus touches someone, he doesn't become unclean. He, is, he, he makes them clean. Did you know that when you have come here today, many of all of us, um, you see, were unclean at one point in our lives when we did not know Jesus. Now, I, I, I hear that that sounds like uh, kind of harsh. Like if you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not quite a Christian. Whoa, you just said I'm unclean. Dude, we were as well. The reason I'm clean is because Jesus paid for my sins. Nothing that I do, nothing that I add, nothing that I could do. Jesus makes me clean. And if you don't know him, yeah, you're unclean. You cannot stand before a holy God. The only thing that you deserve, what we deserve, was hell. But Jesus will make you clean. Come to him, turn from sin, embrace him. When Jesus puts his hands on you, he makes you clean. 
So not only does he, he, uh, he, he touch these people, like the dead girl and, and the bleeding woman and the blind men and the demon-oppressed mute. There's all these different themes that come out of these, these interactions that come with these different uh, healings that Jesus does. Now, when you, when you look at what was required, going back to um, uh, this person with this horrific skin disease, when you look in the book of Leviticus, which you can, you can go and do that later, you will see a number of requirements of this person. For good reason, by the way, um, I, I was Googling leprosy and, um, and the comment from, I can't remember where I was reading, it's like, I, I realize this isn't the best place to do your research on leprosy, okay, but someone said, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of contagious. And I said, kind of contagious? Kind of contagious sounds like at some point I could get it. What does kind of contagious mean? And it, they went on to say, yeah, you'd have to be in contact with... Y- y- I don't want to be gross, but like, you know, just fluid, you know, like from the mouth and nose and those types of things. And I was like, what about if someone sneezes on you? The requirement in the law was that they had to be outside of the camp. They could not be with the rest of the people because it's kind of contagious. Um, And it could wipe out an entire city. It could wipe out an entire group. It could wipe out the entire line of the son of David. It's kind of an issue. And they w- had to walk around, and uh, when they saw, came across other people, they were required to say, unclean, unclean, unclean. They were required to do that. And they had to grow their hair over their face and kind of cover, cover up. And, but here's the thing. If they were cleansed of it, they could go to the priest, and the priest was required to do the, 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 the priestly doctoral duties. And they would uh, make a sacrifice. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is calling him to, to obey the law in this. And he, he sends him to go to the priest and, and let them see it. They would see this great, great miracle. And they were required to do these different things to um, pronounce them clean. And welcome them back into the community. Jesus shows great compassion for the outcast. This person would certainly be socially, economically, among other things, outcast, outside the, the people of God. And I wrestle with where that hits my own heart. Do I have instant compassion for the outcast? It's one of the first, one of the big things you see. You know, a while back, my family and I went hiking. It's like the theme is like hiking, right? But it's not really. Like we were out hiking. And we came back from that, and you're, you're tired, and you're thirsty. And, you, you know, you pu- after the, pu- the place, you, you park at a whatever, a Circle K or some, some store in the city that's not our city to go buy some, something to drink for the family. And I'm walking up to the store. It's in a city that we don't know. And right, right in front of the door, kind of almost sort of semi-blocking the door, is someone in great need. You know what I mean? There's a neighbor who's, who's clearly, most likely, homeless. He's begging for some help, begging for some money. And I'm walking out the door, and you know, you know what it feels like when you're kind of down to the last $33 in the bank, you, you're paid in a couple days, you, the, the pantry is full, you're going to eat, you're not going to go hungry, but you're like, you got a few dollars. It's not like you don't have dollars. You have like some left in the budget, and you're walking up, and then someone's going to ask you, and you go through those awkward moments of what do you say? What, like, what do you say when you come into that s- interaction? Do you say, no, I can't do that, which is a lie if you actually have, like, or, uh, you know, I don't do that. 
and, uh, and you kind of feel like, wow, do they think I'm just not a generous person, I'm not kind, or, or all those different things you go through. Is that just me, or is that you at all? Or maybe you just have the opposite of compassion, is frustrated and angry that someone's asking you for something when you feel like they shouldn't, when you're asking these questions, well, are they working, are they tried? All these other things that hit every single one of us. And the question I have for myself, and the question I have for you, is my first inclination toward compassion for the outcasts, because they're clearly outcasts, or is it something else? The thing that we learn from Jesus as we follow him is that he actually has great compassion for the outcasts. And so I'm asking you as a fellow disciple, as a follower of Jesus, what is your sentiment? Let me hit more home. Uh, Just a while back, a couple weeks ago, um, my dog, who is a beagle, has an amazing sniffer. She can smell things all the way from Brea and Buena Park possibly other countries. We're not sure. She smells all those things at the same time. She goes to our backyard, and she's barking a lot at night, 10 o'clock roughly, losing her mind. Now, where you need to know where we live. We, we have a, like a wall in the backyard, and it backs up to this creek. Our property goes further down, and then there's this, this, this creek back there. It kind of runs. It's just grown wild, right? And it kind of sounds like there's maybe some people down there, and, and sure enough, our neighbors tell us the next day, hey, look, you know, we've had some sounds. We have some people kind of camping, setting up like a, a tech com- tent community, like down on the creek behind our, behind our yard. And my first inclinations were, dude, what are you doing in my backyard? Which is legit. You don't have to have someone in your backyard. But my first inclination was not compassion. Like this, hits, it's a big issue all around us. This city, neighboring cities, it's a big ongoing thing with our county, and the solutions are complicated and difficult. But what I want to ask you about is your Christian heart toward outsiders and outcasts. And I realize that might not be the particular mission that God has called you or I to in particular. However, Jesus is the model for compassion toward the outcasts. Um, And I'm asking, where does that hit you? And what are the first inclinations in your heart? But one of the first things we learn as we look at Jesus as a follower of him, as a disciple, the way we can learn is by looking at these themes. The first theme is compassion for the outcast. So I ask you, where's your compassion? I ask myself, where's my compassion? What am I called to in those moments? Now, there are multiple answers to some of those difficult questions. But what I'm asking is related to our first impulses of our heart. Is it in bitterness and frustration? Or is it, man, a fellow human being is broken and helpless and beat down? Do I look at it with the eyes of Jesus when he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless? Theme number two is a growing sense and trust in his word. Now, we say that and preach that all the time, but you are going to see that hit so hard in one of the next themes that pops out. Jesus has this interaction with a centurion soldier, who, by the way, is a Gentile. He is not of his tribe. He's not Jewish, right? He's a Gentile, Roman citizen. And he comes to Jesus, and his servant is very sick. His servant, he has, first of all, he has concern for his servant, but his servant is paralyzed at home. And he loves this person. This is what it says in, ch- in verse 5. When he, when he uh, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. 
appealing, coming forward, appealing to Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. I don't know about you, but one of my worst nightmares, like I, I can't imagine being imprisoned in my own body. Like it's a prison. Hey, real quick, is it hot in here? No? All right, good, we're good. If it's warm, uh, we'll let one of the elders turn on the AC. I just didn't, I don't normally have it on, it's okay. We feel the fire of the pulpit, the fire. Gee, so gee, this, this centurion, this, uh, this Gentile comes and he and he's, and he's has this great compassion for his servant and, and he's having this interaction with Jesus and he's suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him in verse 7, I will come and heal him. That's Jesus, the first thing he says, I will come, I will heal him. But notice what he says to Jesus. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. I love the heart. I am not worthy. Every one of us is not worthy to have Jesus in our home. But I trust you, and I know that what you say happens because he knows, he knows something about Jesus. You are God, and you can speak it, and it'll happen. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and the other goes, and, and another comes and comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Jesus marveled and said to, to those who followed him, Jesus is showing him all these. He's showing his disciples all these things. He's showing us all these things. He truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and from the west, and they will recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. I realize that sounds almost confusing for a moment. Not the hell part, but the sons of the kingdom. Like, well, who's the sons of the kingdom? Like, we're in the sons of the kingdom. They're the sons of the kingdom. I'm, I'm going to address that. In the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you be have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, what Jesus is talking about when he's talking, people coming from the east and from the west, he's saying that there are people that are complete outsiders. They are not Jewish ethnically. Because the prominent view of the day was, hey, look, who are the sons of Abraham? Us, ethnically Jewish. That's it. It's us. And Jesus is saying, no, no, they're going to they're come from outside, from the far reaches of the earth. They're Gentiles. In fact, he's talking to a Gentile, a social outcast, and he's bringing good news to him, and he heals his servant, and he t addresses the faith of this, this Roman, this, this Gentile person, and Jesus marvels, Truly, I say, no one in Israel have I found with such faith. To believe what he says. And so on one hand, I want you to understand, like, so when, when Jesus is saying, hey, they're going to be cast out of dar darkness, what he's telling this group is a very profound thing for them to hear. It's like, yeah, not all of Israel is Israel. And it's also explained in, in Romans chapter 9. But the sons of Abraham are those of faith. Th that's essentially what Jesus is saying. And those, there are those that were born ethnically, they will be thrown into outer darkness. 
they are not part of us. This is a profound thing for them to hear. And what, Jesus, what, what Matthew is really pushing forward here is look at the man's faith and trust in the proclamation of the word of God. So followers of Jesus, they grow and they trust in his very word. And I wonder if we trusted his word more, would we read his word more? And uh, would we obey his word more? No matter how hard it is. You know, because Christianity, it can feel really hard at times. Like Jesus is calling me to something. Jesus is telling me something. And it goes completely contrary to what I believe. Or it goes completely contrary to what I want to do. And there's a sense in which I, like, I, I want to do what he wants me. I want to love that. And, you know, a changed heart embraces that for sure. And yet in the midst of that, um, uh, there is the, the growing and the maturing in our faith in such a way where we are growing in the knowledge and the trust in, in his word. And I just wonder, would we obey him more? Would we like it more? Would we like more of what he says? Would it be okay? What, you know, what, with what I used to believe, I thought was okay, I just found out it's not okay. And am I okay with Jesus telling me that? You see, disciples, as they follow him, as you learn to follow him, you, learn, you start to love his word more. Not only do you grow in your compassion for the outcast, but you grow in a love and a trust in his word as well. Third theme, the theme of his suffering and his atonement. Now, Jesus has this other healing episode. It starts in, in verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick uh, with a fever. And he touched her hand. Here we go. Touching physical ailment. And the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. Uh, and he cast out the spirits with a word. With a word, he, he casts it out, right? So the Gentile recognizes Jesus can speak a word. Jesus is God. Man, oh, man, God does that, speaks a word. In fact, we're going to see that address later in the narrative. And healed all who were sick. This was, so, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our disease. He took our illnesses and he bore our disease. Um, illness and disease and the brokenness of all of that comes from sin. It does not necessarily come from your current sin. Just because someone gets sick or has an illness does not mean that they sinned in particular. But however, si uh, sickness entered the world with the sin of Adam. And the way Jesus is going to bear this and deal with this, not only did he experience um, the brokenness of this world, but him going to the cross, he, is going, he paid for us in such a way to wash us, but to make, recreate a world where there is no more sickness. You see, Jesus, he bore our illnesses and our disease. And it's the cross that handles this. You guys, it is all about 
the cross. Jesus died for my sin. And I will raise from the dead because of what he did. Number four. Number four, accept the cost. So there is a growing and, and maturing and, accept and, and compassion toward the outcast. There's a love for his word that develops. There is the fact that Jesus, the theme of Jesus, going to the cross for us. And number four, accepting the cost. Now, I read earlier that um, um, a religious person came to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you. And he said to him, man, the foxes, they have holes and the birds have a nest. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another said, hey, uh, a disciple, a disciple uh, uh, said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Now, does this mean Jesus does not have compassion for those who have lost father or mother yesterday? It doesn't mean that he do doesn't have compassion for those people. The, there is a strong point being made by Jesus that there is a cost to following him. And if you haven't experienced that, you will, and you have, um, and there is a massive cost to following him. And what I'm saying to uh, the followers of Jesus, the way you follow him, the way he makes his disciples, is he has you count that cost, and there are things that will come into your life that will be difficult that you will have to count the cost. Let me give you just a little example that's kind of maybe easy for this room right here, uh, possibly. Maybe someone's struggling with their sexual identity. And that wouldn't be unlikely in the culture and the environment that we're in right now, that we are in right now, in our country, in our city, in our schools all around us, and what is preached um, uh, toward people about sexual identity. And maybe, maybe the, you might be here today struggling with your, your sexual identity, but Jesus would have you count the cost to follow him which should be to embrace what he says is right and true and good for humanity. Namely, if you're male, you're male. If you're a woman, you're a woman. And God has made it this way. Um, perhaps, this is not many, many of you here, but it hits you because you are the sons and daughters of uh, either a widow or widower or a sin... Or, Sounds weird to say, but a soon-to-be widower, widower. Life is really short, and the next thing you know, your, your parents, someone is going to pass away if you outlive them. And they are going to run into a situation, maybe, uh, who knows, a year later, two years, a few, several years later, uh, mom or dad that you thought would never be married to anyone else, they, they want to remarry, and they perfectly can. Let's just assume that they want to they're a believer, and they want to marry this other believer. And as they're working through that, you kind of get wind that, um, that they're struggling with the idea of getting married because of the tax benefit that they lose by not being married, if you know what I'm saying. I don't know if you know that. See, see those of us who are younger don't know. Like, so when you're, when you're single, there's a there, it's, it's better. But then you get married, you get taxed more. And all of a sudden, you, you, you have these couples that are older, and maybe they're getting remarried. or they, Maybe they're, they were single their whole life, and they're getting married much later in life. And they're struggling with the idea of getting married because they're going to be taxed harder. So they have to count the cost of following Jesus and obeying him and obeying the laws of the land because they love Jesus. 
You see, Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Um, hey, foxes, they have holes and birds, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so you maybe you might see mom or dad struggle with that. The right thing for them to do is to get married. The wrong thing to do would be to live together and fornicate. We have to count the cost of such matters. Number five. Disciples will grow in their understanding of Jesus' authority. This is laid out so strongly in this next thematic section. In verse 23, And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Why did he rebuke the winds and sea? And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? You see, it's actually a a demonic storm that takes place. You have all these sailors that are on this boat, and they're freaking out about this storm, when in reality, where they are, it was was never like like that. These are seasoned um, ocean people or sea people. They, they, They know what's going on, and now they're terrified. And they're calling him, and Jesus rebukes it. Now, their question is, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And it's answered in the following verses, in particular, verse 29. See how it says, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? That's the kind of man it is. And so in verse, going back to verse 28, it says, and when he came to the other side of the country of the, the Gadarens, two demon-possessed men met him and they coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Do you see that? Now, there's an accusation behind what the demon-possessed are saying, what the demons are saying to Jesus. They are accusing Jesus, but they also are recognizing his authority. You see, disciples need to, under, need to understand the authority of Jesus. Even the demons do. The demons recognize the authority. You have the right to come and throw us into the lake of fire. Are you coming before our time? You see that? Are you coming before the appointed time? It's an accusation. But Jesus is not thrown off by their accusation at all. But that, that's what they're accusing him of. And he ends up sending them into this, these pigs. They go, rush, they go raining down the into the water and they, they drown. It's this horrific scene of them just a kind of like a, a, pre, a pre-show of the, dra- the, hell, the, the, the pigs burning in the lake of fire later. It's, it's, it's horrific. And they, they recognize his authority. So number five, disciples need to recognize, understand the authority that Jesus has. Does Jesus have authority in your life. Now there's the whole issue of understanding and buying into his word and listen, and having compassion for the outcast and really believing his word, but then also recognizing that he has authority over me. 
And what this ends up looking like is I actually, not only do I believe him, but I end up obeying him and doing what he calls me to do, even when it's difficult and I have to count the cost. And even though I will get taxed harder because I don't love money more than I love Jesus, I count the cost and I obey him in that because he's God and I am not, and I want to love him and obey him. And be, even though it's hard and maybe you're struggling with your sexual identity, you say, I'll just be celibate. I'm struggling with these feelings and these most, these things, I don't know what's going on. There's broke, you recognize there's brokenness, you ask for help, but you say, I'll just be celibate because I want to obey Jesus. Oh, I won't retire and just smoke weed with my, my husband or wife for the years to come because, you know, it grows naturally and it's okay. I mean, the spirit of the age says, you know, it's not, it's just a little, it's just a little buzz. But you want to count the cost and follow Jesus and obey his word, then you'll obey him in, in this as well, even when it's, it's hard. But is it, is it, is it that hard to, to give up something that you should not do to obey Jesus and submit to the authority that he has over me, over us, over his church? Do I love his word and believe it? Am I, at the very least, like this Gentile guy who says, I am unworthy to have you in my home, but just say the word, God. Can we say, just say the word, God, and I'll do it. Oh, how hard it is to submit to the authority of God when our aging parents decide they want to give 70% of what they, their wealth when they pass away or whatever, or let's just call it 100% to their local church. And you think, oh dang, my inheritance. Am I the only one that thinks that? But when I submit to the authority of Jesus, by the way, that happens all the time. Because, so, you know, she, like, she'll outlive her husband. Sorry, guys, we're going to all die before our wives do, most likely. It's not always the case, but sometimes. And then she's like, man, my church blessed me, or this missionary, and I, I've, t I've helped my kids, and I love them. They're, they're fine, they have jobs, and they're, they're whatever. And I, and I just want to, like, write this check when I'm gone, because I just, to the glory of God. And uh, the surviving <laughs> adult children say, what the heck? But are you under the authority of Jesus? Do you trust his word in such a way? Do you have compassion for the outcast like grandma did or does? Who says, I love Jesus so much that I can freely give this money away. I'm unhindered. And lastly, and I'm just going to just show you. I'm not going to uh, explain everything. Um. The final theme is the theme of handling opposition. One of the things that you will see as you study this passage, you just look at it, you will see an ongoing development in the opposition that Jesus deals with. He is unhindered, untethered by it, but, it, but it, the opposition happens. In verse 9, I'm just going to, uh, in chapter, nine, chapter 9, verse 1, I'm just going to read this real quick. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and, and came to his own city, and behold, um, some people brought to him a, a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes and, and said to themselves, This man is, a, is blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts, for which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? 
or to say, rise and walk. You see, at this point, Matthew has been crying out, Jesus has authority over everything. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus can speak a word. Jesus can speak the universe into existence. In fact, he did. And they are struggling with him. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Why? Because he is God. He then said to the paralytic, rise up, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God and had given, uh, who, they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They're blown away by it. Jesus experienced this opposition and more was to come. Eventually he would be murdered and uh, crucified. He'd be murdered horrifically and he would bear the wrath of the Father for our good and our sake and for his glory. You see, but Jesus faced this opposition, this ongoing opposition. In fact, what's going to happen to the disciples, what we need to know is that you and I, if you haven't, you will face opposition for your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's just opposition and temptation to sin. No, no, just let's, let's just live together. And then you think, okay. Um, or you will have someone just not like your Christianity, but Jesus goes on. The disciples are going to face it. You and I are going to face it. How are we going to deal with it? Jesus is un, unfazed by it, and he just continues to go on mission despite the opposition. Let me just, let me just uh, I'm going to close in prayer.